Hi, welcome to the Warden FinTech Podcast. My name is Christoph Williams, and today we're thrilled to have Andy Ratcliffe join us. Andy has a really distinguished background, both as a venture capitalist, founding Benchmark Capital, and as an entrepreneur, founding Wealthfront. Benchmark is famous for its early-stage funding of Dropbox, Uber, Snapchat, and Instagram, while Wealthfront is a leading automated investment platform with over $5 billion in assets under management. As a bonus for our listeners, we have a special Wealthfront sign-up link for you. If you go to wealthfront.com slash wardenfintech, you will get your first $15,000 managed absolutely free. If you would like a first-class automated investment product with incredible tax efficiency and at no cost on your first $15,000, sign up at wealthfront.com slash wardenfintech. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Andy, it would be great to get an overview of your time in the venture capital industry, and then we can move to where your work with Wealthfront takes you today. Well, I started in the venture capital business while I was going to business school at Stanford, so around 1983, and I pursued that until 2005 when I retired to teach at my graduate school alma mater, Stanford, to go on the board of trustees of my undergraduate alma mater, Penn, and to do a number of other activities where I wanted to give back. So. I started teaching in 2005, and Wealthfront started uh, initially in 2008, although we pivoted it to the current business in December of 2011. So I was initially the, uh, so I I co-founded the business, was the first CEO, brought in someone to run the business for about four years, and and I transitioned to be the executive chairman, which just means I'm an active chairman. And then about five months ago, I came back as CEO. To dig in a little bit on the founding of Wealthfront, there's an interesting story I've heard about how you had the idea for the company while you were at a Penn Endowment meeting serving as trustee. And I thought it was interesting to hear that you found a problem that you could take advantage of through an inflection point in technology. Can you tell us a little bit about your thought process there and about your jump from investment to entrepreneurship? Well, I had absolutely no intention of starting a business, uh, nor did I want to be an entrepreneur. I was very happy retiring from the venture business, which I adored. I loved every minute of it. But sometimes things find you. I'm a big believer that great ideas find you. You don't find them. There are very, very few instances of an entrepreneur sitting in a room going through their list of ideas for the best one and uh, coming up with the idea by prioritizing the list. The really compelling businesses are usually the result of someone who's authentic to an opportunity, and it just hits them one day through their authentic experience. So I was uh, not intending to start a company. I uh, I was on the uh, I am on the board of the Penn Endowment. I actually become the chairman on July 1st. And oh, one wow. day, congratulations! Thanks. It is a real honor. And one one day. Back in 07, I was sitting in a meeting, and the premier university endowments, I believe, are the best managed large pools of capital in the world. And the Penn team was, investment team was describing how it was that they generate their great returns. And something hit me as I asked a number of questions as to how they did what they did, which was primarily through arcane tools and spreadsheets, that if one were to do an 80-20 on what the the endowment investment teams do, but in software, 
we could solve a problem that I constantly ran into. So I wasn't looking to solve a problem. I just was hit one day with this, that over the, my years as a venture capitalist, I had recruited a lot of people to portfolio companies who had gone on to financial success, which then caused them to reach out to me for investment advice. And unfortunately, I could never advise them to do what I do, because even though they'd made one to five million dollars, they still couldn't afford access to the investment products and services that I'm incredibly fortunate enough to have access to. And that always struck me as wrong. And so sitting in this meeting, it just hit me like a thunderbolt that, wow, if you were to do an 80-20 on what the endowments do and do it in software, you could solve that problem that I constantly ran into. And I was also aware that there was a, a big change going on with regard to application programming interfaces being made available by the financial industry, which is what would have enabled that software uh, to solve the problem. Had I known how difficult it was going to be, Christoph, I don't think I ever would have done it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's something that we hear from fintech companies commonly is that there's these huge opportunities there, but there's also a, a certain amount of regulation. That's not and the hard part. That, that's an annoyance. That's not the hard part. It's interesting, right? Because financial services companies in particular seem to take a whole extra amount of time to build. You've spoken elsewhere about how it takes a long time to build financial services company. There's sort of natural oligopoly there. There is regulation. I'm wondering within that framework, what is your plan over the next five to 10 years? And then what's the long-term roadmap? Well, one of my teaching partners at Stanford, Mark Leslie, likes to say that entrepreneurs start companies for three reasons. They like to change the world, build a great enterprise, and make a lot of money. Now, it's not often that you get all three in one. But as a former venture capitalist, it wasn't worth my time if it weren't an opportunity that offered all three. So we're trying to build a large company, a large independent company that hopefully will change the world for the better. And by that, I mean democratizing access to sophisticated financial advice. So as a venture capitalist, if a company's likely successful outcome wasn't an IPO, we wouldn't invest. That means if we thought we could make a lot of money through the sale, ultimate sale of the business, literally, we would not invest. Specifically with Wellfront, though, do you plan to go public? And what is that sort of strategy over the medium and long term? Well, I'm from the old school where going public is a great thing. I constantly emphasize this to all our, our employees. I don't understand this new generation of entrepreneurs who think going public is bad. It's often the best thing that can ever happen to you if you have a great business. If you don't have a great business, it's a terrible thing. But if you have a truly great business, then going public is fantastic because uh, it, A, gets you a lot more attention. It's free marketing. It gets you a lot more credibility. And it also gets you a currency that you can use to expand through acquisition. So I really hope that we can turn into a, an independent and large public company. If you look around at a lot of these other wealth advisors, Vanguard, Schwab, and Betterment seem to be betting on a hybrid model that may include some automated investment tools, but also includes human beings in that equation. And it seems like Wealthfront is the only one still all in on automated. So if everyone else seems to think that you need human beings, why do you think your strategy is the right one? And why are you, why are you betting on this direction? 
Well, this is perhaps the thing that people least understand about Wealthfront, and that is that our target audience always has been and will continue to be young people. The analogy that I like to draw is to that of Charles Schwab in 1975. He actually, Chuck actually pointed this out to me directly, that when Chuck started in 1975 to offer discount brokerage, you have to remember back then, the only way people traded stocks was through a broker with whom you had a personal relationship. Now, in 75, commissions were deregulated, which created an opportunity for people to cut the prices. But the only way you could cut the prices was to change your business model so that you had a much lower cost business model to deliver on those radically lower revenues. So what Schwab did was they changed the model to rather than calling or talking to a broker with whom you had a personal relationship, you literally called an 800 number into a pool of brokers with whom you had no relationship. Pooling the brokers together radically cut the cost. Now, the only people back in 75 who were willing to trust something like that were young people. I know that sounds crazy today, but you have to put yourself back in the mindset of 1975. So right. the average age of a Charles Schwab client in 1975 was exactly the same as ours. The average income and net worth, inflation adjusted, were exactly the same as ours, which was 32 years old. And in the ensuing 42 years now, their average, Schwab's average client has aged 26 years. So they've gone from 32 to 58. What that means is they grew with the baby boomers. They built an ideal solution for baby boomers and grew with them. And they now have approximately $3 trillion under management. We hope to do the same thing for millennials. If we can be the preferred source of investment management services to millennials and grow with those millennials as they accumulate wealth, then we think we can do as well, if not better, than Schwab did, meaning accumulate at least $3 trillion of assets. Now, it's not going to happen tomorrow, but we're trying to build the ideal solution for young people. Young people, and I bet yourself included, don't usually like talking to people. You prefer interacting electronically. You know, I have uh, kids who are 22 and 25, and I can't call them. I have to text them. But I call my friends who are my age. I'm 58. So we think that delivering investment management services through software is ideal for young people, but not ideal for people my age. So Vanguard really understood this. They have a service that's not at all electronic. They're often confused to be a robo-advisor. The only thing that's electronic about, Wealthfront, about Vanguard is they have a website. That if you sign up for Vanguard's personal advisor services, you fill in the application online, but you then have to print it. Our clients don't have printers. You have to sign it. You have to staple a check to it. Our clients don't use checks. And then you can't even scan it and email it back. You have to mail it via snail mail. So that works great for, again, for baby boomers. It doesn't work for young people. So I think that Vanguard has said they're focused on people who are plus or minus 10 years from retirement because when people reach that age, they reconsider their financial advisory relationship. So I think the Vanguard service is phenomenal. 
Now, other people who, who do a uh, hybrid approach charge significantly more than Vanguard. Vanguard only charges 30 basis points. And I don't get it. Now, Vanguard doesn't have the software to do what we do. And no one has invested in developing the private wealth manager-like features for their customer base. So if you compare what we deliver, no one can compare in terms of the tax efficiency of what we offer. We offer some things like the ability to sell your, your company stock in a very tax efficient and low cost fashion, something that's traditionally only available to executives. And we're soon to introduce a, a new service that will surprise people that a software-based service offers. So digging into that, though, you clearly offer a service that people love and that they're able to interact with without talking to a human being on the phone or faxing. But there still is value to some people in being able to call up a person that they can talk to about their money and how it's doing. And I'm wondering how you think about offering that as an option. And no interest whatsoever. We have no so interest in that. Because... What you might not appreciate is that if you try so trying to serve everyone serves no one. So it, the companies that win in technology are the ones that figure out who they can serve incredibly well. It's better to serve a niche incredibly well than try to be pretty good for a lot of people. I've learned this over 30 years, over and over and over again. It's counterintuitive. You would think that if you broaden your offering to serve a wider audience, you'll get more money. No, that's not how you build competitive barriers. We want to build the best service for young people because that creates a tremendous moat. No one, by the end of this year, you'll look at our services compared to others and say, how did I even think they were the same? Now, we'll miss out on older people who have more money, but as our clients get older, they accumulate more wealth, in the long run, we'll win. And everybody else will have a commodity product with not nearly as good economics as we do. Do you think at all about offering a white label service to allow other companies to use Wealthfront to power their back ends? Well, we've been asked by many, many advisors to do that. And the problem that people don't understand is that the only thing advisors would like to use such a solution for is to solve what we call the son-in-law problem. So imagine that you're a typical registered investment advisor, and you might have $500 million under management, and you charge 1% annual advisory fee. That's the industry average. So that means you generate revenues of $5 million a year. And you typically do it with a staff of low-paid people who take care of the day-to-day -day details. Now, you might have one or two partners that you split that $5 million fee with after expenses. So imagine I, uh, I come in and I say, Christoph, you can outsource the management of your client's investments for a low fee of a quarter of a percent. Well, that means you have to pay me $1.25 million out of your pocket. Do you want to do that? No. So what you want to do, the reason they're interested in using these services is imagine that your minimum is $2 million. And one of your clients who has $3 million with you calls you up and says, 
you know, I've got this son-in-law that I'd really like you to, to work with, but he only has a quarter of a million dollars. Will you take that business? Now, you don't want to piss off your client with the $3 million, but taking on a client with only 250000 is uneconomic for you. Right. So what do you do? Well, software like ours is great to handle those little accounts. So you really only want to use us for the stuff you don't really want to take. And right. I think the experience of other people in this space is exactly that, that they're not actually attracting a lot of assets through their private label service because people don't want to use it for their main service. They don't want to pay that fee. So you said that you have a lot of interest, but what have your conversations been like in that regard? Well, you're willing to convert your entire book of business over to us? Well, no, that's not where I want to start. So you have to pre-qualify these things. So that's number one. Number two, we really want to reform this industry. This is a really sleazy industry. And being in bed with the slime balls is not the way to reform the industry. Interestingly, I, I wrote a blog post about how new entrants, new internet entrants, have uh, chosen to work with or compete with incumbents in every single market I knew. So I looked at about 20 or 25 different, in a blog post uh, called uh, Demystifying Venture Capital Economics Part 4, I evaluated something like 20 or 25 different major market areas like travel, real estate, transportation, hospitality. And in only one case, did the successful internet company work with the incumbents? And that was real estate. Zillow and Trulia worked right. with real estate agents. In every other market you can think of, the internet entrant specifically avoided working with the incumbents. But it's really funny to me that everyone in the financial services industry tells me that we're crazy because we need them. The data sure says otherwise. Airbnb, Airbnb didn't partner with Hilton. Uber didn't partner with taxi companies. Amazon didn't partner with Barnes & Noble to get started. You talked a little bit about your growing with young people, becoming the wealth service that they use, but I'm wondering how you make that journey to be a mass market product. You've had success so far, but as you plan to become a 10 or $100 billion company that's serving mass market, how do you cross the chasm? Well, I'm a devotee of the term of this, the process of crossing the chasm. It's actually a big part of what I teach in my course on product market fit at Stanford. So what you find if you execute the strategy ideally is you start with a beachhead, with a niche market uh, for whom you have incredibly tight uh, linkage or interest. And then over time, you expand into adjacent markets. So if you look at our history, what we did was we initially started with Silicon Valley engineers. And we tried to focus on internet companies even more than enterprise companies because we thought the people in those companies were far better connected. We started with, uh, and even more narrowly, with people who worked at, at Facebook and LinkedIn because they used their own products to be connected to a lot of folks. So we started with Silicon Valley internet company-based engineers. 
Now, they shared, they were the influencers in their company, so they shared what they were doing with their friends who were the product managers and biz dev and marketers and, and salespeople and so on. So we started to expand into other functions. And then what we found was those people went to school with folks who went into other professions, lawyers and doctors and investment professionals. Interestingly, I think investment professionals are 7 or 8% of our client base, which surprises many folks. But they started telling their friends who lived in the Bay Area. And then those people started telling their friends who lived in, who they went to school with, who lived in other areas. And so it just started to spread via word of mouth. And that was uh, accelerated through the invitation system that we used that we really modeled after Dropbox. As you continue to grow your user base and continue to attract attention, how do you think about the incumbent players potentially putting up roadblocks to stymie your growth? Well, they can't. That's what people don't understand, that if they could, I wouldn't have made the living that I did in venture capital. So people overvalue and overreference the impact that, that, in, that the incumbents can have on startups once startups get product market fit. You just can't get them out of the way once they have product market fit, unless, unless you have a network effect in your favor as the incumbent, and that's not the case in our industry. So I'm not terribly worried about the incumbents coming in. And when they do come in, they can only build the product that we shipped five years ago. You can't just suddenly catch up on five years' worth of features, although they would like you to believe that they offer what we do. So for example, in 2015, in, in 2015, Charles Schwab entered the automated investment service market. The service they entered with was what we started with in 2011. You can't in one year develop what we did over, over four years. Software just doesn't work that way. They claimed they were the same as what we did, but they didn't, weren't able to do that. So much so that they claimed that they offered tax loss harvesting as one of their features. So after a couple of years of trying to get analysts to benchmark all these different tax loss harvesting services and not succeeding because they just wouldn't put up the money to open accounts, on April 1st, uh, exactly a year ago, we opened $100,000 accounts with Wealthfront, Betterment, and Schwab with exactly the same risk characteristics. And over the course of the year, on our $100,000 account, we harvested something on the order of $3,800 of losses. So the benefit of that would be multiplied by whatever your tax rate is. So let's call that 40% tax rate. So that's going to be something like $1,500 of value. Guess how much Charles Schwab harvested in that one-year time period, which included Brexit and the election? Was it less than $1,000? Zero. That, <laughs> well, doesn't stop, that doesn't stop them from claiming they do it, but practically speaking, they didn't do it. And then Betterment did about 40% of what we did in terms of what they harvested. So you can claim you offer the same thing, but clients ultimately recognize the difference. And you know, Charles Schwab has attracted something like 12 billion of assets, but only about 1 billion of that is from new clients. All they're doing is converting and cannibalizing their existing customers 
who are the most cost sensitive into their automated investment service. So we don't worry about Charles Schwab. They just can't build the software to keep up. So you mentioned that the incumbents are going to have a harder time putting up roadblocks if you guys have product market fit. But to think about the product market fit that you have, how is it unique for you? And how do you think about product market fit in Wealthfront's case? And how is your thinking about that concept changed since you were a venture capitalist? It hasn't changed at all. This is why we're building features that are specific to young people. So I think that until until November of last year, we built a lot of great investment features, but they weren't necessary and, and they were software based. So we thought they would appeal to young people because they were software based, but they weren't features that were particular to people in their 30s. So in November, we introduced a college savings plan, a 529 college savings plan, which is a tax-advantaged way of saving for college that's analogous to what uh, an IRA is used for retirement. And that's something of great interest to young families. And uh, then we introduced our selling plan feature, which allows people to sell their stock rateably. Most young people are compensated with some sort of equity as a major component of their compensation. Then in January, then in February, we introduced PATH, our financial planning experience. This is the first time financial planning has been done through software, uh, and it's radically different. And then uh, everybody else is adding planners. So you can really see the fork in the road with what we're doing in planning versus what everybody else does. So if you want to get a financial plan done, you basically you hire a the only way to hire a financial a good financial planner is they typically have a million dollar minimum that they invest on your behalf because they can't earn a living charging an hourly fee. They have the only way they can earn a significant living is by charging an asset fee. So if you're fortunate enough to afford the minimum, you'll sit down with them and they'll interview you to get basically inputs into a commercially available software package that they all use. So there's not a hell of a lot of insight that goes on. They're just trying to get the inputs for their software package. At right. the end of the interview, they go back into their office, they type the inputs into the package, they print out the results, they schedule another meeting with you in two weeks. You sit down and talk about it and might make some edits. They go back to their office and put the edits. In another two weeks, you might meet with them again. Now, I would imagine you and your friends don't like having such meetings relative to other things you could do. In contrast, what we do because of the availability of APIs is if you give us permission, we automatically connect to your financial accounts. We don't have to interview you. We automatically know what you spend and what you save by connecting electronically. And by the way, we can tell you immediately. There's no two-week turnaround. And we give you the opportunity to play with it yourself on your smartphone while you're standing in line for a coffee or while you're on the train. So we think that that's a radically superior approach to planning for young people. And by the end of this year, the functionality of our planning will be, not only will it be quicker, more interactive, and more personal, but the depth of the planning will be well in excess of what's available from these commercially available software packages that were first built 20 years ago. And then we have a bunch of additional features that are coming out through the course of the year. Nobody is delivering software 
at our features at the pace that we are that will even further differentiate us from everybody else, especially among young people. Everybody else is is trying to go to the old person, but the old person really wants to talk to someone. As you go through that process, discovering needs of your current and future customers and building out features for them, you mentioned that the way that you think about product market fit is uh, similar to other companies, but I'm, I'm wondering how it might be distinct for financial services and how it's fintech not, companies... not at all. Product market fit is a very general concept. It is not at all specific to industry. Either the dogs want to eat the dog food or they don't. And there are some techniques you can do to optimize that but it's very simple and straightforward. And the best heuristic to use as to whether or not you found product market fit is are you growing exponentially organically? Because if you can grow very rapidly without spending any money on marketing, you know that people love you because the only way that you're growing is through word of mouth. Now, you can fake growth through advertising by buying customers. The problem is if those customers don't tell their friends, it all falls apart once you cut back on your advertising. We're the only player in our space that spends very little money on advertising. So other people might have grown faster, but it wasn't through word of mouth, and we don't think it's sustainable. Our growth is actually accelerating to the point we're now the fastest growing player in our space. I've heard you mention before that you're willing to sacrifice some amount of growth in order to build a far more sustainable model, yes. a business model. And it seems very unusual to hear that from a former venture capitalist. I'd love to hear a bit more about your thought process there. Well, venture capitalists care about building the highest quality and most valuable business. And the most valuable business is usually the one with the best economics. And as I said before, you can really spoof growth through advertising. But if you're not generating far more value than it costs to acquire a customer, that can really implode on you. And we have a bunch of competitors who are doing that. We are not. So if we zoom out a little bit and think about the greater fintech market, say you were still at Benchmark, how would you go about investing in fintech companies? Do you have a thesis about the industry? So good venture capitalists should never have theses about industry because just when you do, that's when the, the great entrepreneur comes along and breaks them. So that's a very common misperception about how venture capital works. What you want to do is keep a prepared mind is probably the best way I could characterize it. That the venture capitalist isn't the visionary, the entrepreneur is. So what you attempt to do is be is A, traffic in the best entrepreneurs, and B, keep a very open mind so that when an entrepreneur comes in and tells a story that's very different from what you're hearing everywhere else, that's where you want to dig in. Here's another way to think about it. My investment idol is a guy named Howard Marks, who's a former Penn trustee, who I just adore. Howard is the founder and chairman of Oak Tree Partners, which is probably the premier distressed debt investor in the world. And Howard is as well known for his quarterly letter to his investors as he is for his fantastic returns. Well, Howard likes to say that the investment business can be described with a two-by-two -two matrix. And I believe that this is equally appropriate to entrepreneurship. On the one dimension, you can either be right or wrong. And on the other dimension, you can be consensus or non-consensus. 
Now, clearly, when you're wrong, you don't make money. But what most people don't realize is that when you're right in consensus, you don't make money because all of the returns get arbitraged away. The only way to make really big returns as an investor and as an entrepreneur is to be right in non-consensus. Now, when you start, you only know that you're non-consensus. Only time will prove whether or not you're right. But the premier venture firms all make their money in that right and non-consensus quadrant. That's not what analysts or reporters will lead you to believe. They, they feel much more comfortable in the right and consensus quadrant. But those are the companies that get sold for small amounts of money. They're too obvious. And so you'll notice that a lot of what we do at Wealthfront is contrarian or non-consensus because that's the only way you have a shot of winning big. I know you've written uh, a career guide uh, that's on Wealthfront's website, and I'd encourage all of our listeners to take a look at the Silicon Valley career guide that you wrote. But I'm wondering if you have any specific advice for our listeners who are considering entrepreneurship or investing in fintech. Well, the, the basic advice from the career guide, which is based on advice that I've been giving my students for the last 12 years at Stanford Graduate School of Business, is that you get more credit than you deserve for being with a successful company and less credit than you deserve for being with an unsuccessful company. So it really isn't worth the risk to join a company that you're not confident will succeed. So it makes almost no sense to join before the company has product market fit. And I would go on to say that it probably makes more sense to join a company when it has, when it's mid-sized, it has 20 to 300 million in revenue and is growing at a rapid rate and likely to continue to grow rapidly for the next three to four years. Then you're almost assured of getting that halo effect. And with that halo effect, you can parlay that into a more senior job at another earlier stage company, or maybe interest from venture capitalists, or maybe even if you want to get into the investing side of the business. Joining a large company can be a great career path, but not if you ultimately want to join a small company, because small companies don't value the experience that you get at a large company. For example, if you were to join Google or, or Facebook today, they're fantastic companies, but the lessons you're going to learn as a marketer or a product manager are not at all appropriate for a small company because those two companies are monopolies. And what right. you do as a product manager is figure out how do you leverage that monopoly to generate more product sales or more engagement. Well, if you don't have a monopoly, what good is that education? So that's why I think it, when you're just starting your career, if you want to go to something early stage, go to a mid-sized company with momentum. And then you can move earlier stage when, if you've been successful, you'll be heavily, your company's been successful, you'll be heavily recruited and in, probably into a higher quality set of companies. Andy, I've had a fantastic time talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. I really appreciate it.